Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am so thrilled to welcome my guest, legendary choreographer Lar Lubavitch. In addition to his long list of concert dance credits, with his works having been performed at the New York City Ballet, the American Ballet Theater, the Paris Opera, and more, and having run the Lar Lubavitch Dance Company for 55 years and through performances in all 50 states, he has lent his talents to Broadway stages, creating dance for Into the Woods, The Red Shoes, Salome, The King and I, and High Society, as well as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 12 Dreams, Oklahoma, and Allegro off-Broadway. And now, without further ado, here's Lar Lubavitch. Well, so I would love to begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in dance as a career? Uh, Well, uh, I always danced by nature as a child. I didn't know that it existed in the world as a profession, actually, until I was in college at the University of Iowa. And I discovered dance there for the first time. I was an art major, and uh, I also was working uh, in gymnastics. And then I had the good fortune to see a dance company for the first time, which I had never seen before. And that sort of ignited the ignited the fuse. Uh, and did you see any musical theater early on as well, or was that not part of it until later? No, it was not. My family was not inclined towards theater at all. I had seen uh, musical ideas on television, you know, with um, TV shows, but never took it that seriously. Right. And did you have a favorite sort of style of dance early on, too? Well, I knew nothing about dance, so it took me quite a few years to accumulate information to come into something that you call a style or to really know what was going on around me. When I discovered dance, I matriculated immediately, and I was uh, began at the Juilliard School. Um, I, I was sort of naturally able to do all the things that dance required, having been a gymnast, and um, that's when I really began discovering dance. Right. And were your parents or people around you sort of supportive of your doing that as a career? Or no, not at all. Oh. It was a huge to them. They had no idea why I was doing it or even what I was doing precisely. I, I think they thought I was in music school. Right. <laughs> and so once you graduated from college, did you move right to New York? Or? Uh, I didn't graduate. Uh, I uh, was at the University of one year and having discovered that dance existed in the world and that it was appeared to be meant for me. I asked a few questions and found out that I could go to New York and audition for the Juilliard School, which I did. And uh, so after only one year, University in Iowa, I went to the Juilliard School and uh, 
was there for two years before I began dancing professionally. Right. And did you find that auditioning and getting jobs as a dancer came easily to you early on or, or when you were starting? Right. Uh, it did come rather easily. Um, I had a natural predilection for dance. Uh, my body was able to do all of those demanding things. And um, I was, I think I was quite a good dancer, but also at that time, um, the pool of male dancers in New York was much, much smaller. So if you were a man that danced at all, you were likely to get work. And did you have sort of the choreographer's third eye even back then or? Well, I already had an, uh, an artist's eye having gone to Iowa as an art major. I had always been involved with uh, painting and drawing uh, from a very young age. And that was my, what I had my mind's eye to do was to be an artist of some sort. So I already had a pretty good eye for, for seeing, uh, you know, there's a, a term called aphantasia and that term called hyperphantasia. Uh, hyperphantasia are people who see extremely vividly with their inner eye. Aphantasia applies to people who have very, very little inner eye ability. But from an early age, I think I realized I must be very hyperphantasiac. Oh, that's very interesting. And so how did the decision come to start the Larlulovich Dance Company in the 1960s? Uh, well, when I started dancing, uh, I discovered it through a, a, a company called the Jose Limon Company, which was at its, at that time, one of the leading modern dance companies in America. And um, what I saw right away was that it was not just dance, but that someone had made these dances up. And uh, I, I somehow got it in my mind that that was who I was meant to be, someone who made up dances. Uh, and uh, so when I started dancing, my idea was to learn to dance well enough and long enough to step out there and make my own dances. Huh. So I, you might say I, I had it in mind to create my own company from the time that I began, once I realized that that's kind of what people did. That was kind of the paradigm at that time. Choreographers, uh, notable choreographers created companies in their own name, created their own dances and presented a body of works. And uh, that was the paradigm I was following at the time. Right. And how did you find a company of dancers once you did open? Well, by that time, I was well integrated to the dance community. I knew a lot of dancers my own age and people who basically needed work. And it um, started as a group of friends of, of, a, of a similar mind towards how to dance and why to dance. And uh, so I formed a small company, basically friends at the beginning. That was in 1968. As a choreographer, I'd be curious to know, how do you decide sort of how strict to be in the rehearsal room? And has that changed over time in either direction? Rule of conduct in the rehearsal room have shifted dramatically <laughs> in the 21st century. And um, what was once considered um, uh, legitimate behavior <clears throat> Uh, you know, in more recent times has come to be pure abusive. Right. And that kind of behavior is never acceptable, it never really was acceptable, but it was condoned for a good many years. I was never a part of that idea. I, I began as a dancer in a lot of different companies right away, and I was subject to um, that kind of 
conduct from people that I was working with. So it appeared to me very early on that that was um, unnecessary. And the 21st century is sort of backed up by the idea that that kindness is a far more creative tool than cruelty. And um, I began on that path and followed that path as a, a working modus. And did you have choreographers from any area of the dance fields who you aspired to or even tried to emulate? Uh, well, I think I was trying to emulate the idea of what I thought the best choreographers were, not emulating what they did or their work. <laughs> but it appeared to me early on that it was imperative to find one's own voice <clears throat> and that the choreographers whom I admired very much at that time, we notable people were Martha Graham, Jose Limon, um, Jerome Robbins, George Balanchine. Uh, each of them had made incredibly distinctive bodies of work that were easily identifiable. They were involved with a signature style. So it appeared to me early on that in order to do the kind of work, it seemed like um, morally necessary to speak in one's own voice. And so my effort from the beginning was to try to find my own voice, right. not to copy their work, but to copy what appeared to be the morals of art making. And a great choreographer who I think you studied with was Anna Sokolow. And I'd love to ask more about her and what you sort of learned from her. Yes, she was a teacher at Juilliard. She, she took choreography there. And I became rather friendly with her outside of school, just in you know, coffee meetings, just advice kind of things. Um, I wonder if most people know that Anna Sokolow actually created hair. Uh. It was an associate of, her, associate of hers, Julie Arnold who carried it a step further and got it to Broadway and eventually became the choreographer of note for hair. But actually it was Anna Soklow, the great modern dance choreographer who conceived of hair and created the original movement ideas for it. That's very interesting, yeah. And so what makes a subject matter appeal to you as a choreographer for? Well, generally it's music. I would say that it's always the rule, but I would say that it's generally the rule that in my particular case, uh, it's music that makes me need to dance and makes me need to create for dancers to do. Uh, I love to watch dance. I've never tired of it. I've been making dances for almost 60 years. And one of the inspirations for making them is to see wonderful dancers dancing. And in order to do that, I have to find music that sets my own inner eye, my own kinetic response in motion. When I find that music, I can make a dance. And do you prefer to work with living composers as they're writing it, like Steve Reich? I know you collaborated with, or classical music, do you? I have no preference. Uh, I, I've danced to music of all genre, and it's it's just a, um, a less than conscious response to music, and it's a felt, it's a felt response. And it happens uh, in a variety of ways with a variety of different sound. And you mentioned the necessity of creating your own style early on. And do you feel that that has changed over time? What? Uh, I think it's evolved. I think it grew. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it wandered far afield from where it originated. And sometimes I've had to remind myself to what I understood by nature when I began dancing before I was educated, because I knew things intuitively 
that were really at the heart of discovering who I was as an artist. And sometimes as you progress further and further into creative field, a great many obligations and uh, rule, rule, ruled type situations can impose on one's real sense of self. But I've always had to remind myself was when I began, how it felt and, and where my motivation came from. So I do not think that my style changed, but I think it evolved as I very stubbornly stuck to that original intuitive voice that came out of me. And so your first um, choreography for a Broadway stage was in Bejar with Maurice Bejar. And how did that come about? Well, uh, the Bejar company was called the Ballet of the 20th Century. It was a company in Brussels. Maurice Béjar was one of the most famous choreographers of his time in Europe. And uh, I had been choreographing for a little while, I guess. I gained some reputation. My company had toured Europe a number of times. And uh, he commissioned me to make a dance for his company, which he subsequently brought to New York. And his company debuted um, in New York City and uh, had one of my dances on the program. So you call it a Broadway debut, but it was a dance uh, it was a, a dance performance, not a Broadway theater performance. Right. And do you find that Broadway stages are different than traditional dance stages in terms of the way you have to choreograph for them, just sort of on a physical level? Well, a stage is a stage. The lights are there, the floor is there, curtain is there, the proscenium is there, the wings are there. A stage is the stage. Nothing changes it. And so how did um, Into the Woods first come about for you? And uh, Well, James Lapine, uh, the writer, director of Into the Woods, of course, um, was somewhat of a dance fan. And he had done some, I'm not sure, I think he did some um, promotional work with Twyla Tharp and uh, possibly served on her board, I'm not certain, but um, he was aware of dance in the world of dance and uh, he was searching for choreographer. I'm not sure why he came to see my work. I'm not sure who advised him to do it. I know that he attended with the designer, Heidi Landisman, designer, um, not of Into the Woods, but a well-known theater designer. They're closely associated and have done um, works together. And um, so I just got a phone call from James Lapine asking me meet with him and Heidi Landisman on the subject of Broadway theater work. I'd never done it before. And what made you decide to sort of enter that field with Into the Woods? And... Well, because I was invited to. <laughs> right. I haven't decided too many things about uh, what I've done as a choreographer. I've almost never said no to any work I've been offered because I always felt that it was offered to me that it was, I don't deal in magical thinking, but I always reacted as though an offer meant some sort of affirmation of my value and i thought it would be rude to turn it down so i've almost always done everything i've been offered to do uh -huh. so i didn't exactly decide to go to broadway i was very fortunately invited to go to broadway by james lapine right and in what ways do you think that a choreographer's role is different on broadway than in ballet oh it's very different in broadway theater of course, there's a hierarchy in the um, creative team, and it, it's, it starts with the director, sometimes starts with producer and then the director, depending on the, uh, the power grabs in the situation. Um, and then, the, and then it, it whittles down to 
my position, choreographer, which sometimes comes after designer. And it turns out that the choreographer for Broadway theater is the voice of the director, if the director could choreograph, which was a wonderful challenge. And I, I, I really enjoy it. I've enjoyed it every time I've done it because it's going to someone else's creative mind, someone else's unusual thinking apparatus and trying to make something that they would make if they were able to make it. It's a great deal of discussion as to go into it. But as I'm not the central creative force, my ideas are subject to interpretive responses to someone else's ideas. Whereas in dance, you say ballet, but ballet is a very specific kind of dance, just say concert dance in general. The choreographer is generally, you know, the, the top head on the totem pole and everything lines up behind his ideas. So taking a more um, subjugated position is both a relief and, and a puzzle. And what was that process of getting into someone else's mind, like specifically with James Lapine, who I know you've collaborated with many times? I have several times. Uh, wonderful, because he has a wonderful mind. He's, I, I think it's fair to call him a genius in his field. Right. And, uh, and so, so it was wonderful to find him sharing his ideas with me and trusting me to uh, create images that would um, vivify his ideas. And what was it like to be working with a group of people who weren't all sort of dance and trained dancers or? Uh, very different, very different indeed. Um, uh, people who sing and act and move <laughs> uh, have a different reference to dance than dancers for whom the language of movement is, is their first and foremost uh, facility. Um, so finding movement for singer actors to do that looks legitimate, looks believable, is not injurious and does not demand things of them they're incapable of, uh, is a puzzle of its own. And, and like all puzzles, intriguing and, and wonderful to get involved with. Right. And what was your collaboration like as well with Stephen Sondheim, who's another genius? Yeah. Well, I had much less time with uh, Stephen than I did with James, of course. Uh, and so the relationship is a little more distant. It turns out that he really did have to be comfortable with everything that was on the stage and uh, that James was always very um, uh, aware of Stephen's need to feel comfortable with how his work was represented. Right. I'm very respectful of that because they had a very close relationship that I'm not privy to. So I'm not sure how they worked out the terms of their relationship. But my time with Lapine was uh, far more, more deeply investigated than any relationship with Stephen. Well, I did work with him several times and found it quite difficult. And would you suggest changes to the script and score as well, or? Would I suggest changes? Oh, no, <laughs> no definitely not. Um, the, 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 the job, I'm sure it's different with every director. I've worked with a number of directors. I've worked more with James and other directors is to not only um, find a way to bring out of the mind's eye what's in somebody else's head and to make it into a reality that can be viewable, but also to help that person decide what they want. In James' cases, because he has so many ideas, um, part of my responsibility was kind of 
gently helping him to realize the best thought he had. And so having a slightly more distant position, I could be more objective. And I could say, no, no, back up because three ideas ago, you were in the right place. Right. And how do you decide on the level of complexity of the choreography that should go into a Broadway show? Uh, well, you know, going back to what I said, that it's the director's eye that has to be satisfied. And so the director has a vision and what the choreographer presents has to be understood by the director's ability to see or his in his seeing apparatus. So whether it's complex or simple, um, I will say that in the case of James, that he would have to see many, many different versions of something before he found a version that that satisfied his inner eye. Uh, so uh, with, the num with the many things I had to do, I had to do many, many times. So the number itself wouldn't change, the song wouldn't change, the uh, clientele, the personnel and song wouldn't change, but I'd have to restage it a number of times until I hit the mark he was looking for, which sometimes was a mysterious search. Uh, but it sort of falls in line with, I know it when I see it. And I think that that was James' point of view also. He couldn't exactly, precisely describe what he wanted to see, but when he saw it, he knew it. Right. And what did sort of need to be altered about the movement of the show after the tryout? And... Well, I don't know what went on in Pasadena. I don't even tell you who the choreographer was. Uh. I don't even know if there was a choreographer. <laughs> Um, but when I was brought into the show, I believe it was to uh, enhance the movement um, values of the show. Um, there's always, um, I wouldn't call it a conflict, but a, a conundrum um, between the person who writes the show or writes the music of the show and the director, in this case, book writer of the show, that Stephen prefers that people do nothing when they sing his songs. In this case, that was his preference. So anything that was done um, had to be codified to such a simple presentation that it wouldn't um, it wouldn't interfere with the way Stephen wanted to hear the song. And he felt with his lyrics being so complex that any additional movement would be an obstacle to making it perfectly clear. So simplify, simplify, simplify was frequently the rule of the day. Right. And having been part of the being part of the creative team of such a long-running show as Into the Woods was, did you revisit it often or ever? Or? Yes, quite frequently. Um, yes, I understood that that I had to revisit it to keep it in shape, to uh, put in new cast members. So yes, I, I spent a good time on the show, and of course we had the road company and the uh, English company, and so there were there was work to do. Right. And does staging often have to be modified for the road? Uh, I don't remember modifying things very much. I think that once the show was there and on its feet and had its language, that that it, it, it's almost like the, the, the words in the script. Uh, you know, once they're written, they stay. And, and, and the, the particular staging that I did was really falls into the category of musical staging more than choreography. There is a distinction there. 
and it was very scripted. It all remained pretty much intact through any production and through cast changes. Right. And so after um, the experience of Into the Woods, did you actively sort of pursue more work on Broadway or did it come to you again? No, I did not actively pursue more work. <clears throat> it did come to me from time to time. And um, as per <laughs> my previous statement, I always said yes. <laughs> and I'd be curious to ask about uh, Salome, which was your next show and how much sort of movement needed to be added to that play and now Salome was a production with Al Pacino as Herod and um <clears throat> a young actress Cheryl I actually don't remember her last name but it'll probably come to me <clears throat> and my job there was just one scene the dance of the seven veils and there was no other musical staging called upon since it's a play but it was the, the famous um inciting Hypersexual Dance of the Seven Veils. Right. And what is the process like of sort of creating sexual choreography? And <laughs> Well, uh, that's, that's kind of a loaded question. Oh, right. Some people would say all choreography is sexual. <laughs> and, and they'd have a, a good reason to think that. Um, but um, I think that it isn't a question of choosing choreography that is particularly sexual, just simply choosing choreography that's appropriate to the subject and and called for in the material. Right. And so I know you were talking earlier about the differences between Broadway and concert dance world. And I'd be curious to know how that sort of changed, if it did, with the Red Shoes, which sort of had a ballet company in it. But if the first part of that question was the difference between working Broadway and working in the world of dance, a concert dance, there, there are marked differences. And I think that probably the biggest difference and I can't help but point out is the amount of money that's changing hands uh, in, in the process of creating these different forms. Uh, dance, the world of concert dance is not a moneyed world. It's a world always in debt and uh, always sort of flying by the seat of its pants and nonprofit making. You know, all concert dance in America has a nonprofit tax exempt status because it is a is an art form that isn't for profit, it's for the elevation of the art. Whereas because Broadway is essentially for profit, the voices that rule and the product that exists is often manipulated to have a result that ends in ticket sales rather than always, rather than exclusively in the realm of doing it because it's the moment, art for art's sake, right. doing it because it's what you believe in, in that moment or in that song or in that play. In, de in various degrees, each in their own, but, but I did find that, that every time I worked on Broadway that the, the, the profit motive at the back end of it would often be um, the energy that dictated the choices that were made. Whereas in the world of dance, the energy that dictates the choices is more purely for the sake of the subject itself. So one can pursue a more, I hesitate to say the word honest because I don't think as honest is the word, but one can pursue a more, um, uh, one can pursue an aim less inclined towards anything but one's own sense of creation. 
And what was it like to collaborate with Stanley Dunn on that, who had maybe even more of a more of a dance background than James Lapine? Or... I'm going to be blunt. It was a nightmare. Oh. <laughs> Uh, whereas he was one of the most profound directors of movie movie musicals in the history of movie musicals, he had absolutely no knowledge of live theater, how it functioned, um, how to stage. He was completely inept, wow. which was a very big shock. He was someone I admired very, very much and was dismayed to find that he was so ill at ease with live theater. And part of the old school of... Um, of behavior that I spoke of earlier, where um, abusive behavior was kind of the um, modus operandi of many people of his time. Right. And I was going to ask sort of why you thought that show had a shorter run, and do, do you think it, that's the reason because of... It had a short run because it wasn't a very good show. Or... <laughs> but the reason it wasn't a very good show is in part because it was not on the page, a good enough show on its own, but made far less good by the uh, direction uh, that it took. I think it actually could have been a much better show. There was a much better show in there than the one that wound up on stage. And what were sort of some of those changes that would have needed to be made? Or? Well, uh, originally uh, it was directed by Susan Shulman, um, uh, whom, of course, you know, is a wonderful Broadway director. And um, her concept of the show in collaboration with Marsha Norman, playwright, was very, very different uh, than the concept that Sammy Donnan brought. So Susan Schulman got it through rehearsals and through creative process. And there was something very, very promising on its feet. And there was a a disconnect between Susan and uh, Julie Stein, who wrote the music, and uh, the producer, a man named Martin Starter. And there was simply a disconnect that uh, created a situation that got her removed from the show. And once she, she was removed from the show and they brought in Stanley Donna and her concept, Marsha's script, everything we built to that point was virtually chucked aside and uh, reshaped in accordance with this new vision and this new director. And uh, it was by far um, uh, a less satisfying direction to take. Right. And I would love to ask a little more about Julie Stein too, who I know you said you don't have quite as much collaboration with the writers, but since he was such a great figure. I had much more uh, time with Julie Stein than I did with John Stein. Um, because it was actually uh, Julie Stein who brought me into the show. I had been associated with Jerome Robbins peripherally. Um, uh, he had created a space called American Theater Laboratory in downtown Manhattan uh, for his own uh, Dance USA, his own experimental theater projects. And um, I met him because I uh, rehearsed there and he came to see a production that I did there. And uh, so we kind of became friends and, and he recommended me to Julie Stein uh, for this show. At that moment, um, there was no director. So it was really just conversations with myself and Julie Stein and getting to know the music and, 
actually choreographing some things even before there was a plan for a show on its feet. And then they engaged Susan Schulman and Marsha Norman and, and the team began to assemble. Right. And what was Julie Stein's sort of vision for the, for the piece early on? Uh, he was not the source of the vision of the show, so to speak. He was the writer of the songs. And and it was a song. It was a song collection that you know you probably heard the phrase that it was, it, it was trunk music. Right. It was a lot of songs written for other productions that never got put to use, or things he was saving that he liked, and and it all got put together as the musical score for the Red Shoes. It was not originated for the Red Shoes, note for note. Although a few songs did get written along the way, but um, consequently he was not the vision behind the show. He was the writer of the music and the vision behind the show is ultimately the producer, Martin Starter, who got that ball rolling. And he was a Hollywood producer. He produced some sort of blockbuster crime movies. Right. And I would be curious to know too, in your friendship with Jerome Robbins, did you ever see the more sort of difficult side of him that people talk about? And... Um, yes. Yes, I did, because I would sometimes attend his rehearsals and he had a manner of speaking to dancers that was very dismissive. Uh, and I, the legend of, of his cruelty, uh, I did not get to see to that extent. I did see the, the leanings towards dismissive behavior towards dancers and um, in, insulting language. In the can, you, can you tell how diplomatic I'm being? <laughs> yes. Okay. And you mentioned uh, Susan Shulman in the context of the Reg Shoes. And I'd be curious to ask too about another project you did with her, which was Allegro at Encores. And what was it like to be working on that in such a short time? And well, that was that was very, very thrown together very fast. And that was early on in the Encore presentations. And it was just a dance. It was a dance in the context of the show that I choreographed for her, but I was not actually part of the production team. Uh, it was it was a, a dance easily separated from the show that didn't integrate, didn't need to integrate with the entire voice of the evening. So I wouldn't say that that was um, work on Broadway show so much it was a, a choreography job. Right. And if you're working on a show that's either a revival like Allegra or based on something like The Red Shoes, will you often examine the original material or do you prefer to sort of set that aside? On The Red Shoes, uh, yes, we, we examine the original material a lot, constantly. And of course, the decision was made early on that to reproduce the movie on stage would not be worthwhile. I mean, there was no real reason for that. It was already a great movie to simply produce it word for word and move for move would not add anything to the subject. I think the 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 ambition, whether realized or not, was to take it in a direction that would deepen, enhance, um, bring new value to the subject. Because the real subject was Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale. Right. And I would love to ask about uh, another piece that you worked on with James Lapine, which was 12 Dreams at Lincoln Center. And what was the process like of approaching this very sort of unusual? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was very enjoyable really because it was choreographing to uh, express music. 
uh, or even to express uh, a, a specific dramatic moment in, in a play, but to express the inner psychology of characters in play. And uh, so that was sort of uh, the challenge there was to express a psychology rather than uh, a literal uh, story moment or, or expression of music. And uh, of course, it was it was written. James wrote it, um, inspired by Carl uh, Jung's uh, um, very unusual uh, psychology. Is based on that. So a little bit of research into Jung, uh, having having a lot to do with dreams and the meaning of dreams, um, was the source of of creating that movement material. So it was it was sort of um, making people's dreams visible nightmares. Right. And I know that was also a production that had been staged before. And was yes. there any sort of discussion with that of? I think the original production had no movement in it in terms oh. of a choreographer. I think it was strictly as a stage play. So this was an enhancement. And uh, I, I think because of my relationship with James, he, he I'm guessing here, he might have valued what, what I could bring to it in terms of um, physical expression beyond only acting. Right. And when in the theatrical world, how much do you like to be involved in the casting process? Very much so. In the Gun Broadway show, I've been integral to the casting process. Nevertheless, word, but always there to, to, to be a part of finding exactly the right, right characters. And how do you approach leading a dance audition? What do you sort of look for? If it's strictly for dance, concert dance, and if it's to work with me, particularly in, in my own company, <clears throat> I'm looking for dancers. Well, first I have to have a great deal of physical ability to be highly technical. <clears throat> and then more importantly is they have to have the ability to do something to movement that turns it into poetry so that if I give them a phrase of movement, they don't give it back to me exactly as shown. The steps may be the same, but there's an inner spirit that inhabits it, that emanates a poetic expression that says more than the movement itself can say alone. So I'm looking for movement poets. When I'm working on Broadway and we're auditioning, then they're always looking for those well-known triple threats so if they can't sing, it doesn't matter what they can do as a dancer. Uh, being where I am in the totem pole, I have to find the best dancers amongst those who already have passed the singing, acting, and looking a certain way portion of the audition. And what do you find is different between Broadway dancers and, and concert dancers, and be it sort of attitude to it, skill level, anything like that? Um, there's something about dancers that's the same no matter where uh, a dancer is a person who will dance no matter what huh. and um, it's a passion it's it's not a choice and and people who dance are extremely ardent about what they do and and they'll do it under any circumstances in any situation and it's true in in any any corner of the dance world it's something rare that i think only dancers have and the um the third project i believe that you did with james lapine was this version of the hunchback of notre dame and in, in, berlin. 
It's a Disney production. And how did it come to be that it was in Germany rather than in the U.S.? Well, uh, it happens that there's a huge uh, public in Europe, but particularly in um, Scandinavian and Germanic countries for Broadway theater pieces. And um, uh, this particular theater in Berlin uh, was a place where other Broadway shows had originated. Uh, it was a place to create a show, you know, to try out basically. And some shows that went in Europe had lives in Europe that never made it to the US, but, but there's an ardent public for American Broadway theater in Europe. And at that time, this particular theater was um, part of the Disney empire. And was there any discussion of transferring it into Broadway or anything like that? Well, that was the intention. But but by the time the show was finished and existed, uh, I was not part of the discussion, but it, I would I would guess that they didn't think that it was Broadway ready or or Broadway material, even, even at, at its base, whether it was ready, whether the show itself was a show that could be a cartoon that could be translated to live action theater, which Disney's done a great deal, as you know, but um, it was a puzzle and whether or not that one was truly transferable. And the um, the other theater director who you've collaborated with a few times is Christopher Renshaw. And how did you two first meet? Or... Yeah, I did The King and I on Broadway with him. And uh, I did uh, Virgin of Oklahoma in uh, England that toured with Christopher Renshaw. Um, he had seen my work on the Red Shoes and and he had uh, been commissioned to do um, Oklahoma, a touring company in England. And so on the basis of the Red Shoes, he asked to meet me and discuss this project and bring me over to London to, to do it, which he did. It was a very beautiful Oklahoma. I think one of the best I've ever seen. I, in fact, it's heresy to say so, but I think that our production of Oklahoma was far better than the subsequent production that played on Broadway a couple years later. But uh, uh, when you do a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, uh, it's the R&H estate that decides whether it passes or not. Right. So um, I think it might have been too contemporary for them for their particular taste at the time. And when you're looking at a show like that specifically, how do you decide sort of how dark to make it? Because I know there have been sort of different angles on it in that way. About Oklahoma, are we speaking? Right. Well, we went very dark and that was probably part of the problem. Uh, it, it, it wasn't in the end, the, the, the sunny uh, uh, affirmation of life that most people think of as Oklahoma. Right. And I would be curious to know about the King and I too. Of course, they were going back to Jerome Robbins and his mm -hmm. original choreography. Yes, well, the, the King and I already had a production as well in Australia, a oh. uh, production that was very successful and was highly approved of by the RNH estate. And so they decided to bring the production intact to the US. So as the production already existed, scenery, costumes, look, style, uh, I was brought in to what Christopher wanted to do is he wanted to open it a bit from the written material and, and create some directions that weren't on the page, but where there was enough room to insert some new ideas. So the Jerome Robbins ballet is copyrighted with the show. Jerome Robbins is the only choreographer who copyrighted the choreography so that any production of his shows 
could only be done with his choreography. It's quite unusual. That makes sense because the steps he created, the dances he created, are uh, every bit as significant and specific as any song that was created or a word written on the page. But um, until Jerome Robbins, that particular um, right had not existed, the right to copyright the steps as well as the songs. So when the production of King and I happens, it can only happen if it includes Jerome Robbins' very famous Cabin of Uncle Thomas, uh, which is a work of genius, a very great work. But um, Christopher was looking for ways to open the show to other movement and other dance sequences. So he created a movement in the uh, palace of the King of Siam, which we call the Golden Ballet, which is the first time that we meet the king in his court. And I created a, a very lavish parade in the second act, uh, which was on the original a movement parade that went on for a while and led led to the announcement that the king was ill. And when you're getting into the movement sort of style of another culture, what is the sort of research process like for that? If Well, what existed was Jerome Rowan's ballet, the Cabinet of Uncle Thomas. It was the only dance in the show. And for me to put new movement material in, it had to match that. And I believe the other show where you worked with Chris Renshaw was um, High Society. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, a pretty bad experience and a pretty bad show. Uh, what, what, what was sort of the problem with the show was just... Well, I, I knew the problem when I saw it in the reading, in the first reading. Um, I, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with with... Uh, the show and the movie was based on and when I, I went through the reading first and my first impression was that nobody cares about a lot of wealthy drunks on Long Island anymore that it's not charming at all it was charming in the 1930s you know and even in the 50s when they did the second version you know originally it was a Catherine Hepburn movie Philadelphia story and then it was High Society with Grace Kelly and, and Bing Crosby and uh, and now it was the 1980s or 90s, if it was the 90s. And it just appeared to me that it was no longer charming to see a bunch of wealthy drunks in Long Island. And I think it turned out that I was right, that people really did not want to see them and were not amused by them. Uh, and I, I was curious too, um, what was the process like of determining sort of what kind of dance or what level of dance those people would do? Um they were actors who moved not dancers and so it was finding vocabulary such as into the woods that they could do comfortably and look good doing uh and would be non-injurious <laughs> physically and uh so that was sort of the you know, the job description and do you feel that the broadway scene changed from when you started out with into the woods to high society which was the last one. I think I know enough about the Broadway scene to be able to have an opinion on that. My work on Broadway has been, uh, uh, besides my real work, which is as a choreographer in the concert dance world. So anything I did on Broadway was a wonderful excursion in another direction, but not the heart and soul of who I am or what I do. So I'm not informed enough about the full world of Broadway to, to give a you know, meaningful opinion on that. 
And then I would also be curious to ask, were there other theater productions that you sort of discussed or started working on that never came to fruition? Or... I think that you covered it all. Oh. My whole life on Broadway. Uh, the only, the work that I've done outside of dance, outside of Broadway is I've, for a number of years, I did a good deal of ice skating choreography for Olympic skaters and for special productions on ice, which is uh, probably closer to Broadway theater than to concert dance. Oh, and why is that? Uh, because it's 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 uh, an entertainment, it's a popular entertainment. Right. And I would be curious to ask too about uh, John Curry and Rhonda Fleming, who are two of the stars you worked with on Peggy ice. Fleming. Peggy, right? Sorry. Peggy Fleming. Uh, John John Curry, a great ice skater, one of the greatest of all time. He was a 1976 gold medal Olympic winner. And Peggy Fleming had won the Olympics, two Olympics prior to that. And uh, choreographed, began by choreographing a duet for them, and then subsequently choreographed some stage pieces. Uh, John Curry had an ice skating company that was appearing on proscenium stages. It's a rather unusual thing. And he did uh, an evening at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. They froze the entire stage, uh -huh. 90 feet all the way back to the loading dock doors, and did a, a an extraordinary evening of ice skating for the Metropolitan Opera audience. And wow. I choreographed pieces for that. Subsequently, choreographed a full-length Sleeping Beauty for BBC Television, and with Robin Cousins, Rosin Sumner's other Olympic skaters. And I choreographed a film called The Planets for Canadian. Olympic skaters. And do you find that choreography has to be somewhat simplified on ice because of just because of the format? Um, no, I don't think simplified is the correct term. The rules are very different. The rules of engagement, you might say, are very different because <laughs> a single step on ice lasts much longer in terms of time and takes up much more music than a single step in dance. And so the way one applies music to ice skating is very different. Uh, you work on a much longer, uh, much longer line of movement because it takes so much more time to finish an ice skating step than to finish a, a dance step. Right. And because of the unusual thing they're standing on, this blade, they can only basically move in curves. There are very few straight lines in ice skating. Almost everything is in curves. So the language of choreography for ice skating is very curvaceous, has to be by the nature of, of the blade they're standing on. And would you sort of have them insert their own ice skating tricks and things like that? Or was that another thing, something that you decided more? Uh, well, um, when you're working with Olympic skaters, we all want to see them do tricks. Right. They're kind of fantastic. And so wherever they can be worked in successfully, meaningfully, and artistically correctly. I certainly was not immune to using them. And I would love to ask about a piece of yours, not a theater piece that was after, which was this Men's Stories piece and how that developed. Well, Men's Stories is a dance for nine men. It's a nearly an hour long piece. Uh, it was an original production with my own dance company. And uh, it's generally about the inner life of men who dance and the struggle of being a dancer in a world that uh, has mixed and confused and dim opinions of men who dance. And uh, 
the 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 pride in being that and the conflict of being that and the commitment to being that in spite of obstacles and it's also about it's about many things but it's also about the beauty of ruin uh, that uh, much the way the Parthenon and these great things of the past exist in the world in a ruined state their ruined state has a kind of a devastating beauty about them uh, because of the history that's that they embody and the the ruin represents um, how they've withstood, how they've withstood the test of time. And so uh, Men's Stories is actually called the Concerto in Ruin. It's a subtitle because it has to do with the ruination of the inner spirit of what it is to be a man in the world and the expectations uh, that are counter to one's true nature, such as having learned to kill, which is counter to anybody's inner spirit. And the person you become because of that kind of devastation. It's a lot, it's a lot in there, big subject. Um, hard to talk about in words because uh, I'm hopefully more eloquent in dance. And if dance says it, I think putting it into words always imposes limits. Right. And do you generally like to incorporate the sort of personal stories of your dancers as I believe you did in that? Yes, I do. I almost always do. And uh, when I have a dancer whom I admire very much in front of me, dancers always tell the story of who they are. Dancing is such an exposing thing to do that if you're watching a really wonderful person dance, and if you're observant enough and seasoned enough to know what you're really seeing, you're seeing that person in the most vulnerable, most exposed light, truly showing who they are. Um, and and that essence is very compelling to me. And when I choreograph for a dancer, I'm almost invariably commenting on whom I see they really are. Right. And who are some of the choreographers you admire today? And I'd also be curious to sort of expand that into a similar question of how do you think the concert dance world has, has changed? Uh, well, the concert dance world has expanded uh, tremendously, exponentially from the time that I began, where it was originally a rather small field, rather esoteric, um, with only a few dance companies of note uh, in America. And then um, as time proceeded, the, the form itself became more recognized, more popular. Uh, it was in large part ushered in by something called the National Endowment of the Arts, which was founded in the 60s, which fused, funneled money towards what they call the higher arts, although that's a, a weird misnomer, high art, low art, it's an argument all itself. But a great deal of money got funneled towards concert dance, and concert dance grew very quickly because of it. And uh, so what was once a handful of esoteric companies in America are now great, great, many highly prominent, recognized and lauded dance companies touring all over the world. And so to, um, as well, to bring us up sort of closer to the present day, I'd be curious to know what was the experience of the pandemic like for you, both sort of creatively and personally? And uh, Well, 
personally, it came at a very good time for me. I hate to say anything. I hate to associate the word good with the word pandemic or the horrors of what we all went through. But um, I was at a time where I was really at a crossroads about deciding what to do next at my age and at my physical condition and wondering if I could continue working at that level. And uh, I was at that particular moment, very torn about what direction to take. And then the pandemic stopped the world and I got off. And uh, it was very beneficial to get off for almost two years because in that time I was able to make the choices I thought were best for, for continuing. So for me, it was a, a, a moment to, to rethink and to re recalculate, re recalibrate. Uh, I didn't do too much creatively during the pandemic. Uh, I admired very much those who did, who really put it out there and had the courage to present themselves uh, insofar as they could uh, on, uh, on the computer. Uh, and I, I was not a part of that. And then I would be curious as to what are you working on now or next? Or Well, I am uh, preparing an online performance. Wow. I did not do during the pandemic. <laughs> I have done subsequently. And uh, I've been doing a great deal of archiving of, uh, of works of the past in association with Library of Performing Arts, um, getting material, videos, and uh, interviews to create an archive of the history of the company and of my work. And um, I've done some online presentations. I'm preparing a new one right now. I choreographed a new duet last year with some dancers from New York City Ballet that will be on this next presentation. And I've also recently choreographed a new solo for a dancer from New York City Ballet that will premiere on our next online presentation. Congratulations. Staging works for dance companies. Um, kind of all over America. Right now I'm in Chicago staging work on the Harbor Street Dance Company, one of the top contemporary dance companies, one of Chicago's top companies. Congratulations on that, that all sounds wonderful. And then, so the final question I'd love to ask is with such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? I think you'd better do what you really wanna do because when it's all over and you look back at it, um, you'll want to have known that you were true to yourself. That is very good advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to talk to you. And Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Oh, yes. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and make sure to come back next time when I'll be joined by two-time Tony-nominated actress Mary Beth Peel. Mary Beth Peel made her Broadway debut as Anna Leon Owens opposite Yul Brynner in The King and I, and went on to appear in Nine, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Sunday in the Park with George, Follies, The Visit, and Anastasia. She also starred on screen in Dawson's Creek and The Odd Couple 2, and off-Broadway in A Man of No Importance, Macbeth, Hedda Gobbler, The Morini Strad, As Thousands Cheer, Cymbeline, and Birds of Paradise. You won't want to miss this interview with a true legend of the theatre industry, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.